Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jarrett Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I have a really great and interesting conversation with the London-based architect and writer, Jack Self. I first came across Jack's work a few years ago when he wrote a great piece for The Guardian on the Google logo redesign from 2015, and I felt like he was writing about design in a way that was really interesting to me. And so I've been following his career uh, pretty closely ever since. His career has kind of been this really interesting jumping back and forth between writing and architecture. And he currently runs the Real Foundation, which is described as an architectural practice and cultural institute that he founded last year. And the foundation's flagship publication is called The Real Review and is this really, really excellent publication about sort of architecture and material culture and, uh, as their tagline says, what it means to live today. And so in this episode, Jack and I talk about his background and interests in architecture and writing and philosophy, his goals for The Real Review, and we talk about the architecture discourse and what value there might be in different types of design criticism or, or a new type of design discourse. This was a really, really interesting conversation for me. I love talking to Jack and getting to know him a bit more. And I just really love the work that he's doing with The Real Review. And I think you'll see the way that they are thinking about the writing there is very much aligned with everything that I'm interested in on this podcast. So I'm so glad I got to talk to him and hope that you enjoy this conversation with Jack Self. I was trying to look back to figure out where I first came across your work, and it was actually a piece that you had written a couple years ago for The Guardian. Uh, you know, actually, you know, just talking about the relationship between graphic design and architecture, it was a piece you wrote for The Guardian about the Google logo oh, redesign. Yeah. yeah, right. And I was really uh, kind of frustrated about the discussion at the time mm. about the Google logo redesign and the way it was being talked about. And I felt like that piece that you had written really cut through a lot of that. And you had this great line at the end about um, and I don't mean to kind of recite back to you a no, thing no. that you had written, you know, three or four years ago. Um, you made, it was kind of like a little joke almost about, um, the name of the typeface is product sans. And is that some sort mm. of reference about us being the product of Google? Mm. And mm. I just felt like no one else was kind of talking about those kinds of things. Um, but all that to say is that, um, and we can come back to that, but I came to your work first as a writer and, and then at, with the real review, kind of as a writer, editor, publisher. But I kind of wanted to start talking about your background because mm. you started as an architect, right? Or you had studied architecture? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, to to kind of very briefly touch on that Guardian piece, it's a huge, it's immensely gratifying when um, something which is very important to you, uh, in an extremely random way, several years later, is picked up by okay. someone to whom you have no direct connection. Yeah. Because in effect, that article was very heavily edited, and, and huge sections of it were cut out. I think they published eight hundred words. It was originally two and a half thousand, oh, wow. and the, and the, and so much of the struggle was based to retain that final sentence and in the end I gave up all the rest of the article and said fine fine you know edit it how you want but leave that final wow. couple of lines so that that for me basically was the only part of the article that I, I yeah. really enjoyed um, but in terms of my background uh, I mean I'm, I'm English originally I spent 11 years in Australia uh, growing up um, I first studied architecture in in Australia. Before I started studying architecture, I was working as a copy editor. Basically, um, uh, you know, in Australia, an event like 9-11 occurred at a really unusual time of the day. And uh, it, a, a number of newspapers were unable to stop the presses in time. So their strategy after this in the years that followed was to employ um, young, inexperienced people to basically do a night shift mm. Uh, and watch the news wires in case 9-11 happened and then I would call my editor and he would presumably stop the presses. Oh, wow. But, dur but during that time, they, they got me, um, they 
trained me as a as a as a copy editor, which was already kind of an amazing uh, an amazing skill to have. Um, and uh, I used to do a lot of of work on kind of foreign news and and all sorts of other subjects like personal finance and whatever. Then I started studying architecture. Um, after three years there, I went to uh, work in France also as an architect, where I worked on master planning and as a landscape architect. And, and this was one of the first times that I began to. Um, uh, have uh, an experience or an exposure to very high levels of urban uh, wealth inequality. I was working on a master plan that was for re for uniting the suburbs of Paris with center of Paris, um, and uh, you know, in essence, this meant a lot of spending a lot of time in the French suburbs, um, where where you know these types of degrees of wealth inequality they're not present in Australia in the same way, um, mm. and. This was actually 2008, so it was just on the on the moment in which these types of questions were coming to the fore with the crash. Yeah. And in a sense, you know, I would say that my career has very logically followed the spirit of the time. I mean, I'm very much a kind of product of whatever happens to be in fashion <laughs> at one moment, or, right. with, with with the exception that, of course, as you move into your late 20s, your mind becomes more rigid and you tend to get stuck in a particular right. way of thinking. Um, but so, you know, and, and then I, I moved back to London to continue working with the same firm as an architect. I lost my job because the developer of the company I was working for, um, uh, or the project I was working for went bankrupt. Uh, and you know, I found myself suddenly unemployed in London. Um, and I went back to architecture school and, uh, at the same time, you know, I began, I became involved with the Occupy movement and, um, I felt that I really needed a, a stronger background in in the subjects that we were discussing so i left architecture school and did a one-year ma in philosophy and economics oh, okay. and then returned to architecture school again so i guess by the time i kind of and and now i'm, I'm about to sit um next week my my final exam my sp spoken exam to become a registered architect oh so wow in that sense, you know it's it's very unusual because you know, recent projects have included things like a lot of publish, publishing, mm -hmm. uh, magazine, but also books, and also I write a lot. Um, but you know, also curation of a couple of exhibitions, and uh, including the the British Pavilion at the Venice um, Biennale last year. Um, and then, you know, also trying to be an architect and also effectively trying to work across kind of, it's a, it's a very blurred line, especially when you imagine that my, my background is also effectively architecture, journalism, um, uh, uh, uh economics and philosophy. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, it's interesting cause I was curious, something I was curious about is kind of what came first for you. Was it did, like, do you see yourself first as a writer who then became an architect or did you study architecture and then kind of get interested in writing? And it really sounds like there's been this kind of constant to back and, and forth, forth where the, they, they do blur together. The, the real interest for me has always been in trying to understand. I mean, the, the reason that the, uh, the reason that the tagline of the real review is what it means to live today is because at its core, what I'm really interested in is the contemporary. I'm interested in uh, trying to understand the the position that we're in today, not just in a kind of, um, let's say, passive way, but really trying to understand what the possibility for intervention in that present are, like what are, what are the possible futures which are open to us? Right. And therefore, how can we make a kind of moral priority about which one we should pursue? Yeah. Um, so there's maybe a kind of the most basic profound or well, the most basic existential question behind it is, uh, what should I do with my life? Right. Um, and and in a way, you know, for me as a as a personal exploration, that's a lot less interesting than how I can contribute towards the direction of the societies that I I find myself within, and the the, the yeah. specifics of the kind of time and place that I find myself in, and what agency I have as a result. Right. I want to I want to get to the real review in a second, but I have one other question, kind of related to sure. um, to your background, and I'm interested in you know thinking about this kind of back and forth between uh, kind of practicing architecture and writing. I'm interested mm. in where um, I don't know how to phrase this exactly, but where did those things come together for you? Um, you know, because it sounds like, um, and I don't mean to to kind of project mm. what I'm taking from your story back onto you, but mm. um, you know, your interest in philosophy and economics comes from the Occupy movement. Where did that start to intersect with your architecture practice or your interest in architecture? And, or when did you start writing about 
you know, the built environment? How did those things come together? Um, when I uh, moved to Britain and I lost my job working as an architect, um, I had to make a living somehow. And I first got a job, you know, my only other skill was as an was a copy editor. I was not a writer. I, I, I mean, I would sometimes kind of effectively write pieces, but you know, the, a copy editor's job is to, is to understand the malleability of language. And someone gives you a 500 word newswire from the U S and you turn it into a 3000 word feature piece, or you take a 3000 word feature piece and you turn it into a 25 word tweet. I mean, this is the kind of, you know, and, and this was still the days when, um, although of course you can kern and space in digitally, there was still at that time a very strong desire to measure precisely in M's and N's. And right. there was a strong typographic element to the way in which layout was done. Mm -hmm. So, and, and a lot of the kind of old, older school printing terminology, which uh, is less and less used in newspaper production today, was that, you know, my, my training, for example, was in the fundamental, the first course was in the difference between hot and cold type. Mm. Um, and, and so when you have a basis like that, um, you know, there wasn't, I wasn't really trained as as a writer to express myself, but really in the kind of mechanics of 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 print and its relationship to language. Um, and so I got a job working as a copy ed a copy editor for the University of Manchester uh, Press, okay. and doing typesetting science textbooks and all sorts of things like this. And uh, you know, then slowly, basically, just um, uh, hassled uh, people until I started getting writing gigs. Um, there's actually maybe one other, I mean, I don't normally talk about this in such detail, but at the same time, I, I also started running, I started reading, uh, the work of, a of a science fiction writer, J.G. Ballard. Oh yeah. And there was one of his books, which is maybe not one of his more popular ones called Millennium People, which is basically about middle-class, uh, revolt. It's about a group of middle-class people who say, actually the pressures on us, the financial pressures to pay our mortgage, to pay for a public, for, to pay for a private school and so on. These are, these are too much. We're going to protest against it. But at the end of every protest, the next day they sweep up the street, they turn the cars back over mm -hmm. onto their wheels, they put out the fires. And, and for me, this kind of idea, the, the, the strangeness, of this middle-class revolt seemed like a very interesting uh, idea. And I was also very interested in a way at that time in trying to understand what this moment right after 2008 was. I mean, this is right. the 2009, 2010. And it, it's felt to me like maybe centuries don't run, you know, 1901 to 2001. Maybe there's a bit of overlap. And, and in a sense, maybe, you know, the 20th century was more accurately 1914 to 2007. Right. And there was a kind of overtime because what I was feeling at that time was almost like the slack tide between eras. Mm -hmm. You know, the kind of um, the Bush administration was out. The Obama administration was very new and everyone was very excited about it. But it wasn't yet clear what the spirit of that really was going to be. And of right. course, in Britain, uh, in 2010, we had a national election in which the uh, the head of the, the BBC reporting at the time said, you know, the nation has spoken, but we don't know what they're saying. It was a hung parliament. Oh, yeah. There was no governance. Right. And what we got out of that was a coalition which imposed in, intense uh, austerity onto the populace. And I don't think the people, and that's in a way where 2011, which was a very kind of raucous year around the world, but particularly in Britain where we had um, riots, where parts of London were completely shut down by rioting for days. Right. Uh, you know, in my neighborhood, it became very difficult to cross the city because there was such, you know, levels of, of uh, violence and shoplifting. Oh, wow. Um, and, and then we also had the Occupy movement at the same time. There was the Arab Spring. There was a lot of political unrest going on. And in a way, I understand that certainly within Britain as a response to the fact that the hope and optimism of 2008 was definitively unfulfilled by right. 2010 right. and that led to a, a quite a lot of social frustration and in a way you know if you imagine the types of subjects that i'm interested in they really emerge out of that yeah. 2008 2012 period let's say yeah um, yeah that that actually makes a lot of sense and as you were saying uh, it was it it became clear where a lot of the uh the subjects of the real review you know really kind of center around so let's let's kind of talk about that a little bit yeah. Um, um, maybe just one final thing okay. to add, because I didn't actually precisely answer your question. 
But the relationship with space, at that time I began oh, right. to realize that, you know, as a result of having worked in Paris and seen this master planning and then been involved in London where I'd been locked out of the London Stock Exchange and been uh, what we call kettled, where you get uh, surrounded by police often on horseback and they prevent you from moving, they prevent protesters from moving. And began to become aware that the city of London itself was a completely privatized arena. There were no uh, there were no public spaces where you could protest, for example. That's why we ended up on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral, because the church was literally the only public space in the city. Right. Wow. Um, and that was the first time in which I'd begun to think about how the design of space and if you want the social conditions the power relations of space mm -hmm. have a huge impact on the direction of quite ab you know in a way very abstract things very abstract ideologies they almost always exist in space yeah uh, so that that was kind of a, a, the moment at which I began to understand that and then of course subsequently began to think well if this is the case what's my possibility f to intervene in that yeah uh, so that's that's and that in a way is also what drives real review as an agenda. I mean, we we do really focus on uh, the material evidence. Right. Um, and, and in effect, you know, the reason that it's a review, I think the review is probably the most undervalued form of writing today. Um, it, it's a really huge uh, category. And uh, on one hand, you know, you can say, OK, well, go back to the 1960s and 70s, you would have these reviews that would be things like, uh, you know, a, a review of a decade in neuroscience covering a whole discipline and period. And nowadays, of course, we have like five-star Amazon product reviews right. and, there's a, and there's a literary review in between. But the essence of the review is basically to consider something which exists in the world, could be an idea, could be a, you know, could be a concept or an, uh, a spatial condition or a specific uh, cultural artifact. Mm -hmm and um, examine it in order to make a proposition. Because, And this is very different from the opinion. The opinion can often be very uh, interesting and insightful and uh, you know useful, but they tend to be quite standalone. They, they don't build a discourse. And you know what I think is really powerful about being involved in a design discipline, or indeed any discipline, is the idea that you are building a, a discourse, a positive discourse as you go forward. You're not simply using opinions as a way to uh, make these kind of flash in the pan. So the the review for us is is important because it first of all focuses on on the material and the existing. It, right. You have to start from from something which is there, and then you know make a proposal about what it is you think should be there or or some other type of uh, let's say yeah. proposition. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean I think that's it's so great, and I want to come back. I want to connect that to something that you had said earlier about um, kind of space being this manifestation of ideology. Um, mm. And that's something that that is exactly what immediately drew me to to your work is is that kind of mindset. So it was so nice to hear you kind of just uh, you know kind of frame that so clearly. Um, I've never actually kind of compressed into a single kind of moment. Actually, that I've never drawn that that oh, history for myself, if you want. But that you know, I mean, I'm a great believer in the in the power of my subconscious. And I assume that it's doing great work. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> it's not always apparent to me, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, now that I've said it out loud, it, that that is not not just a kind of constructed narrative, but actually very much the the truth of the situation. And 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 it, that's also why I say, in a, in a way, that I'm a fairly logical product of the time that I've right. Uh, right. come to adulthood. Let's say. Right. I mean, I've been I've been reading um, uh, Althusser and kind of his writing about ideology, and he has this great mm. phrase that ideologies do not obscure reality but actually mm. make new realities and completely you know just as once an ideology is kind of in place for long enough it just becomes the way the world works mm. and mm. and i have kind of come to realize that the way that happens the way ideologies become the way the world functions is through design and through mm. you know the built world and so completely so when you when you say that the real review is about kind of what it means to be alive today and connecting that to this idea of uh buildings being kind of ideology and space mm. i find that way of looking at architecture looking at materiality looking at the built world and i think you know you could push that all the way to my interests in graphic design mm -hmm. that mm. this is a very important way to be talking about these things that in 
the graphic design profession aren't really discussed much. There's very mm, much mm. like a, a surface kind of layer critique of these things. How do you well, think I, about I, about that? And that yeah, I, I mean, you know, I don't want to drift off into philosophy too much, but two things that come to mind very rapidly. One is, of course, Immanuel Kant says that ethics and aesthetics are one. Right. Um, uh, he, he and and in this sense, you know, when you make an aesthetic proposition, you're also making a moral and an ethical proposition, and right. you're expressing your ideas about the world through that form, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and I think. At the moment, there seems to be a, a super disconnect or a strange, an uncanny disconnect between um, the way in which we think about something like style and the way in which we think about something like substance and form. Right. Um, and in a way, you know, I might compare it to something like, I mean, in the, in the early 2000s, you had mobile phones in which you could replace the outer case. The, mm -hmm. the core of the phone remained the same, but you were able to customize it. Um, and this idea of kind of applying a skin also people who work in a digital world understand increasingly that the the, the core structure of a, of a web platform or a digital platform remains the same irrespective of how you then apply it something like a cascading style sheet or something right. you know we understand that the, that the style and the and the and the basic form are, are in a way disconnected and we shouldn't do that because right. one should logically follow from the other. You know, whether you select one typeface or another becomes incredibly important both for the the illusion, the the conception that you're trying to pass as in, in your role as communicators. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, you know, the vision for the world that you're trying to uh, – I'm always very suspicious of designers who will adopt any aesthetic given any – you know, right. condition because it suggests a lack of personal project in a way. Yeah, you know, a lack of uh, personal integrity. I I know it sounds very strange, but I almost prefer designers who have, uh, you know, a couple of best hits that they develop very early on, right. and then they just continue to tinker with them. Uh, you know, until eventually that that model that they've generated loses relevance and something else replaces it. Yeah. Um. You know. I don't know if that's really a kind of good way to answer your question. I mean, that's interesting. Um, I don't even know if I, I, I don't, I'm not even sure what my question was kind of in that. <laughs> um, but I think that, that's, that's interesting. And I'm, I, I kind of want to tie that to the real review and the types mm. of writing that you are commissioning and the, and kind of, sure. uh, you know, what, I, I don't know exactly how to phrase this, um, you know, other than just what are, what are your goals for the publication mm. or, or what is the kind of discourse that you're trying to uh, kind of jumpstart or, or, mm. or enter into? So there's, there's really two audiences of the real review. There are, there is the general audience, uh, the general public, which make up, I mean, I'm, I'm, process every single one of our subscriptions personally so uh, which is not a small number i mean it's it's we're up to a circulation of, of about six thousand so uh, and more than half of those are subscribers but i always take a great amount of care to see where those people come from often i will just randomly google people to see uh oh, wow. what you know to have to have a sense of who it is that i'm writing for and and what's really nice about a subscription publication is people will write to you directly and you can ha then have a conversation with them so you have quite a good sense of of what has appealed to your readers and what hasn't appealed to your readers right. um but but in a way, there's a kind of general audience who you might call non-designers. Um, they're people like doctors, lawyers, uh, teachers. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I've just yeah. named all professions. But there are of course non-professionals in there as well. We have uh, subscribers who are cooks in Milwaukee, and you know, really oh, kind interesting. of. We, we have a guy who's a panel beater uh, in an auto uh, shop in Montreal. I don't know how he found out about the publication, but he's super into it. Uh, and so and that, you know, at the same time, you then also have people like vice presidents of Condé Nast. Uh, we send issues to one World Trade Center, which gets me every time. Interesting. But but in a way and then of course you have really the the architectural and um mostly architecture and graphic design with some other design disciplines in there as well and they, they make up at least 50 percent, if not more and actually right. a good percentage are, are fashion designers as well it's not clear to me precisely why that's the case but that's mm -hmm. kind of the more or less the breakdown of the readership but in essence that let's say the objective of the magazine is to to do two things one is to 
increase uh, the exposure of or to promote the idea of uh, how ideology is expressed in, in space um, and really to, uh, to try and make sense of the contemporary in a way which is not just analytical or critical but which is really propositional and, mm-hmm. and to explain the, the agency that we, we have as designers and the responsibility that we have. And I found a, a journal recently run by um, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, SOAS, called uh, the Journal of Material Culture. And I didn't know that material culture was the word that I was looking for, but right. that's what yeah. it is. You know, they have great articles, things like, you know, um, the role of the Air Max in the emergence of black culture, 1968 to 1992. Oh, wow. And then they'll, they'll analyze how there was a design feedback between, you know, certain groups in society and certain material products. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the emergence of the British plug standard. I don't know if you've ever seen but the yeah, British yeah, yeah. plug the weird one yeah so you know in a way like this this way of thinking about how anthropological and sociological questions and often philosophical questions and cultural mm-hmm. questions are directly tied into the form of the material world around us i think is is very very important to understand as designers and for a long time has basically been not discussed right uh, so that's that's quite a kind of an important agenda and the other is there are so many interesting conversations going on within each of our design disciplines, but they are often quite inaccessible for people who are, particularly within the world of architecture, quite inaccessible for people who are not within that world. And so the idea is that to create a, a platform in which the pieces are interesting and assume a certain level of intelligence, but which don't assume a professional knowledge and which are in effect written for universally for a general audience right. to, to try and also popularize these ideas within, within the public at large. Yeah. Um, uh, which I think is super, super important. I mean, that's something, that's something that I actually was really curious about talking to you about and something I was interested in, um, was about how you think about audience. And so it's actually mm. really interesting to me to hear how many of your readers are not, you know, directly working in design fields. How totally. Do you, how do you think about writing about these types of topics to, to people? I, uh, this is a two, this is going to be a two part mm. question. How do you think about mm-hmm. writing about these types of topics to people that you know, apparently have an interest in it, but are not directly involved Mm. in it while Mm. at the same time, not, you know, dumbing it down or oversimplifying it for your readers who are very much involved in it. Sure. I think the key to that is very strong editing and very strong uh, clarity, really forcing clarity of thought and and in a way an economy of uh, means. I mean, it should be written in a very simple way, but that doesn't mean that it has to be a very simple idea. Um, and I think right. that's that's key. So, you know, the avoidance of jargon, for example. I mean, there's all sorts of tricks that I learned working on a newspaper, like sentences right. should never be more than 25 words. Paragraphs should never have more than four sentences. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. all of these kind of structures actually really help for the legibility because real review, as you'll have seen, ha- has a very dense text format. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's really long form journalism. Yeah, it is. Uh, and and that I think can be quite intimidating to people if it's not written in a way which is very easy to read. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that kind of the role of the editor is is very important in that. Um, I can't remember what the other half of the question was. I'm um, sorry. It, in terms of uh, well, how you make it relevant to yeah, a and then, and then how do you make it so it's still interesting to oh yeah, to well the I think profession. that. The, the the key to that is is really to do with this question of the contemporary because it has to be relevant and I think if you can understand if you can read the mood in the room uh, three to six months in advance that's <laughs> right. that's the ideal basically right. Right. Uh, you you need to be slightly ahead of the zeitgeist. Um, and, and the thing about that is, of course, the more you study the times that we live in, uh, the more you begin to see recurring patterns, the more you begin to see trends, which are almost inevitable and long-term. Um, but it also means that you can avoid or, or, you know, because of the kind of lens that we look through, which is first of all, the review and second of all, very much a kind of concentration on what you might call the politics of space or the Mm -hmm. politics of design. Um, it, it, it allows you to avoid the cliche and provide things which are quite unusual and hopefully interesting. So, for example, mm. you know, 
there is not a possibility to write about the uh, travel and immigration ban uh, by Trump. I mean, what are the possible angles into that? I guess you can talk about the politics of security scanners, or you can, t you know, the, the actual material reality is, is very low. But once I started really researching how airports operate, and I discovered that all international airports are cl acclimatized to 21 uh, to 23 degrees centigrade, um, it as, as a form of biometric control, basically that temperature, I'm afraid I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit, but it, it gets your, it's the lowest your body can be in temperature before it starts to feel cold and your metabolism slows down. So it lowers your breathing rate, lowers oh, wow. your heart rate. It's very calming. And they also have uh, almost international standards about the removal of smells, uh, the removal of trash, right. uh, levels of cleanliness. I mean, all of these kind of operations, which in Britain at least are mostly coordinated by centralized computer systems. Mm -hmm. And it's the same computer system running the air conditioning and monitoring airflow and temperature oh, that's wow. also uh, scheduling uh, cleaning rosters. Yeah. So once you begin to understand that type of machine and, and how the, the temperature of the air is designed to calm all of these animals before they get inside steel tubes, mm -hmm. um, you know, that becomes in a way a, a way to address some of the discussion around uh, let's say something like Trump's uh, Muslim ban without actually addressing it directly. Right. Um, and in the same way, you know, we haven't covered Brexit. We haven't covered Trump directly because there hasn't yet been really, in the case of Brexit, any material outcome. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. It, it's, it's very, and, and that, in a way, that, co that concentration on the evidence of things is, for me, also very, it really focuses the mind. So hopefully, I guess what I'm saying there is, if you're very sensitive to the types of subjects which are very contemporary, but you're looking through this very precise methodology, hopefully mm -hmm. you will find things which are relevant and interesting and contemporary and current, but which are also not another article about X. Right. Uh, uh, and and that uh, that I think is 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 an attempt then to even present something which is unanticipated or unusual back to people within their own profession, something yeah. they hadn't thought about or in a different way that they hadn't understood it before. That this that this is interesting, and I I'm, I'm trying. I have a, a question that I'm afraid is going to be sound oversimplified, or mm -hmm. you know, and I, I I I'm not sure exactly how to phrase it, but there's this interesting. I'm 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 getting this kind of interesting shift in kind of you know how we talk about uh, you know material culture or a building mm. or something where mm. you know it could be um I, yeah I don't know exactly how to phrase this but like a review of the building or writing about the building itself versus mm -hmm. using the building or the object or the artifact to mm. talk about larger things around it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? C completely. I think um, the way that I, I would understand that is, uh, you know, two of, the, two of the philosophers who have, there are three philosophers who have had a really huge impact on my, on my mode of thinking and my way of viewing the world. They're all coincidentally French. Um, <laughs> one is Roland Barthes. Oh, yeah. uh, another is Henri Lefebvre. And the third is Jean Baudrillard. And each one of these guys, you know, in, in fact, rather coincidentally, Bart and Henri Lefebvre were the dissertation supervisors for Baudrillard. But, but each of them deal with the same types of questions in a different way. So, you know, Bart deals with what he calls semiotics or yeah. in a way the kind of connotations of how images particularly are put together. So he would say, for example, you should give your kids wooden toys because they're abstract and they allow them to use their imagination rather than like metal or plastic toys of things like fire engines or uh, army planes because they condition your child to think in a particular way. Right. Um, and then you've got Henri Lefebvre who says that you know ideology only exists in space. So he says capitalism is not some thing. It doesn't exist out there. It exists at the moment at which you take the money out of your pocket and give it to someone in exchange for the thing that you want. Hmm. So it, in that sense, you know, from the point of view of designers, what that coin looks like actually becomes a really radical political intervention. That's so interesting. Um, you know, and so the, the design of very kind of banal things. And then, of course, Baudrillard really talks about the image and reality. And, and that, for me, is, is a really important kind of distinction today because we often become 
very confused as to whether we're looking at something which is real or something which is virtual, but often the virtual and the real have collapsed into each other, or mm -hmm. in fact, there is no meaningful distinction between them. So yeah, in a way, yeah. trying to to understand you know, the, these three thoughts, what it means is that when you look at something like a building, you know, you can imagine it, these days we would almost des describe it as like an augmented reality heads up display. When you look at a building, you are not just looking at a physical object in space. You're looking at all the forces and powers which created that building. Right. So you're looking at the, the, the almost like the precipitate or the, the material residue of conflict between governance, between corporations, between finance, between different designers within the company, different product specializations, yes. the facade manufacturer, the guys yeah. who make the air conditioning. And each one of these forces are so incredibly complex that there's almost no way to really know how they're going to come together until they form that building. Right. But that building then is really a material artifact. And you can do two things. You can look at it for what it is. But you can, in the same way that we go to like the historical ruins of uh, you know uh, Mexico and or, or Guatemala, and we go and see you know these uh, Aztec and Mayan ruins, mm -hmm. um, or you go to Europe and you go and see these castles uh, you know that have been inhabited for more than a thousand years. Yeah. These become in effect material artifacts which tell you a lot about the way that those people lived, what right. they thought was valuable in society, how they structured their their right. societies, and you can do that for the contemporary as well. And in a way, the more I think. What I would really like is, particularly with regards to power relations in the home, the more that people understand that these things are experiments and design projects and design objects, that there is nothing yeah. normal about tradition. There is nothing, uh, you know, there is no such thing as convention, basically. Everything is an invention. Mm -hmm. And that once you understand that about the objects around you, you you no longer have to take things for granted. And you can really change the way in which you decide to intervene. I mean, a kind of really rapid example is I was talking to my girlfriend about our house and I said, you know, it's very conventional, our house. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, there are many other ways that we could arrange our furniture in here. We basically, we live in a small flat because London is a, a very uh, expensive city and we basically just have two rooms, okay. uh, a living room and, and a bedroom. And then there's a very small kitchen, a very small hall and very small bathroom. But it's effectively two rooms. I said, well, you know, currently we've got the wardrobe and the bed, bed in one room, and we've got the dining room table and the sofa in the other. What if we just put all the soft surfaces in one room and all the hard surfaces <laughs> in another? I mean, what would that do to that experience of space? And of course, it didn't go down well because it was seen as a kind of weird utopian experiment. But in a way, the simplicity of that as an experiment is what right. I really appreciated. You know, it's yeah. there, there is, an, and actually, to come back to real review, to give kind of OKRM their, their dues. Part of the brief was to to consider the page as a type of real estate because the magazine, mm. unlike a website, is um, has a finite condition to it. There's only so many pages, and that forces a certain type of priority. But I said, you know, it would be also really interesting to imagine in the relationship between text and image that there might be some three-dimensionality to this. There might right. be some opportunity to, I don't know, flick back and forth or, or even within one page somehow. I, I wasn't exactly sure what that would look like. Um, and, and what they did was they basically took the machine which puts the horizontal crease in newspapers and yeah. has been doing it for 150 years, rotated the sheet 90 degrees and put a vertical fold. Yeah, so great. Um, which is, for me, like the perfect representation of everything I'm trying to achieve with the magazine, which is here's a system which has been used consistently in the same way for 150 years through and you would think therefore that there is no possibility for innovation alteration mm -hmm. and and you know creating something new but with such a small with a very concentrated form of design thinking a very very small intervention can create something which has never been done before because all we've researched it quite extensively i've not yet found yeah. another publication which uses the vertical fold as a design tool yeah no neither um, so and, and that gives me a huge amount of hope because it's like, yeah. well, here's something where sometimes you feel, God, I don't know what I can contribute to this. I, mean, you know, I don't know if we need to design more chairs or I don't know if we need to design more books. It just seems that everything is exhausted. Well, in a way, at that moment which you reach exhaustion, I think there's a great amount of hope in terms of saying, OK, well, in which case we have to think very laterally about this, this yeah. condition. You know, I love that you... Um you know, kind of connected that to the actual design of the publication itself, because as you were kind of talking about this idea of 
uh, you know, everything kind of being this design experiment. And it, that's so much of what I love about the work that you're doing and that I feel could very easily be translated into a graphic design profession and all mm. of the ways that you're talking about the built world. You could push all of that into talk about typography and logos and branding totally. and all of this stuff. And, and I think so much of this podcast for me has been trying to articulate what is design criticism to me or what mm. is the type of design discourse that I'm interested in. And that's is kind of, I feel like where I've settled in on is that we mm. can look at a company logo and this brings it back to, to the Google article mm. in a way we can look at that formally and look at the kerning and the colors and the typography, or we can look at what is the system around that sure. and, and use graphic design to be a lens into the culture that surrounds it uh and so i'm my, curious my own oh sorry yeah, so i was just kind of well, curious my, your thoughts around that as it relates my, my to my own kind design. of i mean there's there's kind of two two things that come to mind the first is when i was an architecture student i had one professor who insisted that all drawings follow the same format um he only did square drawings because he said then there's no question of whether it's landscape or portrait you have no ability to, let's say, consider the frame as part of the act of drawing. Yeah. And that you only can use the following line weights and you can only use the following scales, one to 100, one to 200, one to 1,000, one to 10,000. That was it, you can't use any other scales. And the reason for doing, and, and every week you had a set list of drawings to pin up on the wall, 10 drawings. And the reason for doing this was that when you have such, uh, so many differences between students, if you force them all to work in a consistently, in a consistent way, he once said to me one week, he got very angry with what I presented and said, you know, I mean, look at the wall, you know, look at the wall, look at what's on the wall. The writing is on the wall. And, you know, he was Italian, so he didn't really understand the idiom. He really was speaking in terms oh, wow. of the fact that you can see that the evidence is in the material. Right? Yeah. You can. And, and so in that sense, you know, I'm very interested when, when particularly when very intelligent people talk about very complex subjects i always think to myself like show me show me the evidence show me that this is the case show me where this is taking place show me even the hint of you know these f particularly futurologists working for people like google mm -hmm. they talk about these uh, miraculous uh, visions of of the world to come and i always think you know show me where where that grain of thought has come from show me what leads right. towards that um, because if there is no material evidence then then i, I have to really question huh. that yeah um, uh, you know, there's a kind of, let's say for my part, a real belief in modernity as, as the scientific method, um, and yeah. empirical evidence. I think that's very important. And particularly there's been a lot of talk about post truth. I mean, I think this in the long run will, uh, you know, not become a serious problem for us because in order for Western modern society to operate, we require the scientific method and an ability mm. to discern truth. So either post-truth leads to the total collapse of civilization, which I find kind of hard to believe, or uh, the, let's say, virus is expunged uh, and flushed out of the body. Right. But that's maybe a slight side point. The other thing I was thinking about more directly with graphic design is it's an act of mass communication. And that's yeah. And, and making, you know, you, you, you spoke about how do you make these ideas, um, you know, interesting to a specialized audience and to a general readership. It comes largely through the role, the relationship I have with OKRM, the designers, who are also partners in, in the publication. Um, and we, you know, this, this exchange around art direction, discussions of how to express ideas, how to make that clear, how to make mm -hmm. that interesting, but also how to make it legible mm -hmm. and and that and that you know but at the same time there are all sorts of other kind of sub discussions which come out of that like on the one hand we would say well um of course there were a lot of typographic experiments in london in the 1920s and 30s around legibility and, and the rise of sans serif right um and, and so of course the publication is written completely in sans serif yeah partly on to that but on the other hand if you typeset the whole thing in helvetica or Arial or you know accident grotesque or something you would end up with an extremely homogenous and, and lacking in real personality um, and, right. and so the, the consequence of those two things, on the one hand, a desire for legibility and the other not to, to, to retain some humanistic quality, to not just lose your personality into a system, uh, was a typeface de designed by one of the designers at OKRM, 
um, called Gestalt, which mm. takes uh, five or six different similar fonts uh -huh. and effectively redraws them and randomizes the order in which letter forms appear. So you'll notice if you look really closely at the front covers of Real Review, on each issue, the R's, uh, there are three or four, there are three variants of, of each letter, and the R's are always different. They appear in different places. That's easy because it's at large oh. scale, but if you look closely, the ampersands, uh, a lot of the punctuation differs quite, quite uh, radically, the quotation marks and so on. And it, it's such a minor detail that you, you don't really notice it. Yeah. Um, but what you do feel is that while the publication has a certain homogeneity to it, it doesn't quite border on the banal it doesn't look like a word document right and that's because you you pick up subconsciously these very very minor alterations and this you know is, i guess a good example of what i was saying before about how um you know you have an ethic you have a a, a moral proposition uh, you have a kind of driving philosophy and then you're looking for ways which express that mm -hmm. I mean, uh, even if they're you know even if you're the only one who notices them, yeah frankly i mean i'm so embarrassed that i had not I'm so mad that I did not it's notice subtle. that until it's, you said it's that. It's really subtle. I'm, it's I'm very, so very mad subtle. right now. <laughs> it's um, it's 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 a very my. I've I've actually never had anyone notice it. Even um, uh -oh. typographers, professional typographers have not noticed it. So yeah. it's uh, uh, secrets out yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, yeah, but that that connection between between the the evidence the the means and and the the ambition they have mm -hmm. to they have to find and I, that's what i think really good design is i mean the best design is when you can see someone had a clear intent to do something and they've executed a yeah. thing which performs that role perfectly yeah um, for sure and that always makes me super satisfied when i see that level of design you know yeah uh, I have I have two more quick questions that are kind of very sure. specific, uh, hopefully kind of short short questions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as somebody who is uh, kind of outside of the architecture world, who's kind of always looking into it, and so when I when I come to your work, I, I you know I, I a little bit feel like an outsider, but I'm very much mm. my design work is very much influenced by architecture and even the way I think about. Uh, d my design writing and, and the this podcast is very much influenced by the discourse around architecture and I've always been jealous uh, I've talked to a couple architecture critics I've always been jealous at the very theoretical and academic discourse that architecture has that graphic design mm. doesn't seem mm. to have as much or, or isn't as interested in and mm. so this first question which I know I said these were specific and quick this first one is yeah. actually a two-part question but mm. I'm interested in um kind of how you think about that architecture discourse as it relates to graphic design and and as somebody who's maybe not as close you know someone who, mm. who's very close to graphic design but is rooted in architecture can some of those things be brought into a graphic design discourse and then the second part of that question is kind of very specifically what are the the kind of issues or the topics that architects are thinking and talking about right now um the the first thing to say about uh you know, architectural theory, I suppose you might call it, is the reason for its existence is uh, a huge insecurity on the part of our profession because we originally kind of were considered, uh, particularly in the Renaissance, as a meta art. Mm. So buildings, if you imagine kind of buildings from, say, you know, the 16, 1700s, particularly as we move into the Enlightenment, they were like ornamental things. You know, they had incredible stonemasonry and, right. and paintings and tableau and, you know, beautiful ironwork or metalwork or brasswork or whatever, right? You know, mosaics and so on they, they were really like composites of artwork and so the the architect was not actually a separate profession it was just the master artist uh, who right. assembled all of the works together um, and so we still have some of that lineage we still have this kind of aspiration to be like the great thinker who is able to assemble these different things into a coherent vision yeah. um, but the reality is that we work as a, as a service profession like right. every other design discipline right. and of course at the level of the university you have all of these this legacy of architects who want to appear as if they are philosopher kings but in fact mm -hmm. the discipline has no real use or interest in those so they're constantly having to uh, uh, justify their own position and to be an academic in architecture is to constantly justify your own existence um, people really don't see them as being uh, or a lot of architects see them as highly suspect figures 
Um, and so there's a huge amount of stress and pressure to, to justify the idea of architectural theory. And that's why we get ever more extravagant in the references that we reach for. And we, we pull in Derrida and Foucault. We pull in, right. you know, there was uh, one architectural professor who once said to me, uh, you can tell that things are going badly in architectural discourse when kids start reading books about why fish turn left. You know, the, this idea of like swarm mentality, crowd yeah. mentality, how that might then be relevant to the programming of architecture. It's like you get really weird topics. And, and in a sense, you know, the genius of architecture and because of that lineage, um, everything appears relevant to architecture, to the architect. They say, well, the mechanics right. of how a flower opens, that's a kind of architectural question. Or they'd say the way in which battle uh, uh, fortifications in medieval Italy were designed to, uh, you know, reduce the um, damage caused by the invention of the cannon. That's obviously, an you know, the, the dynamics and velocity of weapons. That's an, an architectural question, too. And then you've got, you know, the politics of space, whether or not uh, a, a, an right. isolated housewife in her suburban home. That's an architectural question. There doesn't seem to be anything which isn't. And we just absorb everything in as a result whereas a lot of other design disciplines they still kind of insist on the on the boundary of their own di discipline they say well this is graphic design this isn't graphic design architects are like graphic design that's architecture right i mean I, i'm about to say it myself you know i'm about to say and that, that's precisely what allows me this fluidity to move between disciplines and um, because we can be like yeah. well i'm an architect but i could be an artist i could be a curator yeah. i could be a graphic designer i don't know i'd be any of them problem is of course a lot of the time we don't do it well right um but but the desire right. is there and i like that freedom of architecture um because on the one hand it's very clear what you are if you say you're an architect it's a defined discipline it's a profession even uh, on the other hand, it's kind of ambiguous because you could kind of be doing anything. Yeah. In terms of what architects are interested in at the moment, I mean, I think amongst particularly a kind of younger generation, so I mean, I'm 30, which by architectural standards is very young. Yeah. Uh, I have only one built building that's pretty <laughs> typical for someone my age. Okay. Um, uh, the we, we, you become an architect very very late in life. Most architects really achieve their fame in their 50s and 60s because right. it takes a huge amount of energy to convince someone to give you a budget of like 50 million dollars yeah. and do a building like yeah. the, who is conceivably going to buy that type of thing it's crazy right of course you go for the old guy who's been doing it for decades right. um yeah and i'm jealous of other disciplines sometimes for the, the 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 energy that youth has to be able to create things directly yeah. um but in terms of you know the the change in the discourse after uh, up until the 1970s from the post-war period up until the 1970s even early 80s there was a very strong political tendency within architecture because we had been asked by often i mean less so in america but particularly in in europe by states which had been destroyed by war to modernize them we were we were really asked to become agents of the state and the state said we need to rebuild our cities but we're not going to rebuild them like they were before. We're going to modernize them. We want to bring uh, all these modern amenities, new types of space and so on. Um, you know, in Britain, most people had never had indoor uh, toilets before the 1950s. I mean, you go back, right. it was really very, we forget how, how recently we lived in very primitive conditions. And so the architect took this on and, of course, then became very involved in, in politics as a result. Um, but after the 1980s, they were very much discouraged from this and they were really put back in their historical role uh, as, mm -hmm. as people who, who are apolitical. They simply execute the commissions that they've been uh -huh. asked to do. Um, and that led to an entire generation from, from the late 80s through really till 2007 of architects who pretty much refused to uh, examine any type of uh, political or moral question. Um, you know, you, you have people like Zaha Hadid saying that it's, they, you know, there are, there are claims that there are very high levels of deaths on her buildings that take place right. in the Gulf, Gulf states. Right. And, you know, she says, well, that's really not my concern, which is a fair enough point to make. And her other point was, you know, if you start saying, examining the morality of your clients, you can't do any projects because then it's like, well, can I work in China? Can I work yeah. in, uh, you know, can I work in Britain? Who is my client here? What's their intentions? Do I politically agree with them? And she says, well, no, you have to imagine that we're more like doctors. We perform a, a role in society. Huh. We, we, we perform a service and we, sh we can't be judgmental about that. Yeah. But of course, I think that abdication of that politics was hugely problematic. And 
Mm-hmm. What you have then is a generation which have graduated after 2007. So people from there, currently in their mid-40s through to really their early 20s, who are looking for a way in which architecture can regain some agency and begin to make more of an intervention politically um, and mm-hmm. to take more of a stand about what it believes. Because as I was saying before, ethics and aesthetics are tied. The reason that we have so many aesthetic problems today in terms of the selection of style is because we don't know what it is we believe. We don't know why it is we're doing what we're doing. And if we have a very strong sense of purpose, the, those types of aesthetic questions resolve themselves. Right. Yeah, that's great. I have, I have one last, just kind of quick question for you. I'm interested, this is kind of tying it back all the way to the beginning. I'm interested in this kind of dual role that you have as a, as an architect and as a writer. And I'm interested in how how those have influenced each other. You know, how does how does being a writer or, or being someone who's publishing about architecture change how you think about the architecture work you're doing? And then vice versa, how does being a practicing architect influence how you write? Well, I think it follows on completely from my from where I kind of concluded my last sentence, yeah. which is if you've ever got into an argument with someone who believes something quite different from you, Often in the process of having that discussion and argument, you, you say things out loud, which you, you know you believe, but you didn't know that you believed them before. Right. You know, it's only in the process of you saying, well, I actually, no, I think that everyone should have universal health care. And then someone says, well, what about this? And you say, you know, I hadn't really considered that, but my opinion would be, and you give a kind of, um, you give a, 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 an idea which must have been within you somewhere, but which you didn't know or hadn't expressed mm-hmm. previously. Mm-hmm. The mistake that we make a lot of the time is we think we know what we believe. We think we know what we stand for. We think we know what our position is. We say, it's very simple. This is what I believe. But actually, the truth is that as soon as you begin to examine that, it it can often have big holes in it. It can often have large, unresolved areas. And in a sense, the reason that I write is because I would like to know what I think about things. Yeah. Um, and, and I use it as a way of developing my own, uh, because if you have to write an argument that's going to be read by people, you know, you have to do a decent job, uh, and therefore you have to be coherent. You have to, and you have to teach yourself to do that as well, which I think is a very useful exercise. Um, writing is probably the single most valuable, uh, let's say dimension to all the other work that I've ever done because it allows you to structure ideas coherently for clients. It allows you to make a coherent presentation, Right now, for example, the way that I'm speaking is very much part of a process of training myself to always speak in whole sentences. Mm, Uh, You will often see when you see people interviewed and then it's transcribed, they'll start a sentence and and then, and well, uh, but then actually, and then they'll jump into another part of a sentence, which has nothing to do with it. If you structure your thought uh, the way that you write, it can be very useful. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's really about coming to a kind of form of precision and coming to a form of of understanding of my own beliefs in order then that I can you know critique them, understand them better, develop them, uh, and and that can also come. I have to say, one of the reasons I like being commissioned to write for things is that someone will contact you with a very unusual subject that you've never given any thought before, and you have to rapidly come up with an opinion on it, huh. and that in a sense, is a really interesting um, conceptual activity. Uh, Because that's also the way we work as designers. You know, you spend years developing a portfolio in a particular region of design, and then a client comes and says, you know, what what if you, you, I don't know, you spend 10 years designing uh, lobbies to hotels, and then someone comes to you and says, um, you know, we're thinking of doing a a waste processing plant. What are your kind of (laughs) thoughts on waste processing? It's like, you don't want to lose the client. You're like, you know, actually, the few, there's a lot of very interesting yeah. things going on <laughs> yeah. in waste processing yeah. today. But in, in a way, that's that's the, the I didn't want to end with such a kind of banal example. But the, <laughs> the, the that that for yeah. me is very much the relationship between between writing and and practice, or between in, in a sense thinking and and, and doing. Yeah. Um, uh, one which reinforces and refines the other. That's great. I you know I love I think that's like a perfect way to end because that is exactly. I feel like kind of the the goal of of this podcast for me is looking at how mm. those things can kind of influence each other. And you're someone who, you know, very much, I feel like throughout this whole conversation, it's been very clear that you almost don't even see those as separate things anymore. They're so just part of kind of the work that you do. And so 
you know, like I said, I love, I love the work you're doing. I love your writing. I love the real review. Um, and I loved, you know, having this time to talk to you. I thought this was such an interesting conversation. So thank you so much. I, it's, it's been a great pleasure. I really, uh, enjoyed it and I'm very grateful that you would, um, get in touch with me. And of course it's a great privilege as well to be able to talk about your own work and, yeah. and to be able to discuss these types of ideas. Yeah. Um, so thank you. This episode was recorded on May 11th, 2017. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.